Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you recordings from the audio archives. This is the first of eight installments, in chronological order, spanning the years 1995 through to 1999, and all focusing on the Maybrick Diary. The main purpose of these releases is to save and preserve by sharing in digital format Ripper-related recordings originally made on cassette that over the many years are now quickly deteriorating. The following sound recording we are pleased to be able to bring to you is from Paul Feldman's talk at the first meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club on the 7th of January 1995 with his special guest, Anne Graham. Now, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, to how I got there. 
There wasn't one scientist that looked at this or the watch and said it was modern. Not one. The scientist said, this is old. They didn't know how old. They wouldn't be specific enough to say it was 105 years old. They said it was old. The historians said it had to be modern. If they're both right, one other possibility. No matter which way you want to go around it. But let's play modern hopes. That's the favourite. That's the favourite that people believe that this was a modern hopes. But let's put it in perspective. What it really means to say it's a modern hopes. One thing just, anyone can say it's a modern hopes. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that one day, Mike Barrett, his wife Anne, Daughter Caroline, Albert Johnson, Robbie Johnson, his daughter Tracy, Tony Devereaux, and Billy Graham, that's Anne's father, were sitting in a room and they decided they're going to make money by forging a dial. And what they decided that's what they were going to do, and they better go out and they come up with the idea of make break. That's a good idea. We all live in Liverpool, he was Liverpoolian, he lived around the time of murders, he died before, there, uh, he died and then there were no more of the killings afterwards. That's a good idea, we'll come up with that. Okay, let, let's go for James Mayberry. And then they think, well, how on there, we better go and do some research because maybe he wasn't in London. Or maybe he was in the wrong place, just like the Duke of Clarence was. And therefore we can, there'll be this proof, so we better, we better go and, so off they go and they do all this research and we go, they're very lucky because maybe it's never in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. Now we've researched for two and a half years now, it's just over two years now. And they've done all this in a very short period of time. And having done that, they realise that writing the diary is going to be investigated. People want to go to deal with it, but they didn't hit the diaries. So they figure out, well, um, we better go and get some Victorian ink and paper. And they do it just like that. Now, the two people that said it's very easy to go out and buy a book of Victorian ink and publish that information didn't turn up tonight. I challenge them, go and do it. I challenge all of you, go and find it. Then go and find the Victorian paper and then apply one to the other. But that isn't actually good enough because they can test the amount of ions that transfer from ink to paper. Now, this Mike Barrett, who lives in Liverpool, it's been two up and two down, his wife and they are okay. Right, so they get round this, don't know how, because I still don't know how people can make ions transfer from ink to paper. Now, I have been told that you can speed up the transfer of ions by heating the document. How long? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Five minutes? Half an hour? Even the scientists can't ask me about that. How long do you bake it for? Now, if you remember, Warner's pulled out of the film deal because a man called Randell reported <laughs> that the ions had transferred from the ink to the paper and they estimated it was about 1920, plus or minus 12 years. <laughs> that takes it back to 1909. 
I said, damn sight close, it's where she lay, she died. In 1989. Now, these people got the experience to know how to get the ions to transfer from me to paper. And of course they knew an ion migration test was going to be done. It's been done on every ripper document that's ever been discovered, hasn't it? Gentlemen, ladies. <clears throat> on top of that, they have another problem because how are they going to overcome ultraviolet and ultra uh, uh, the ESTA test? The ESTA test actually produces, and when you write on a piece of paper today, it produces an imprint on that piece of paper. You make the paper go down when you write. But what actually happens over a period of time is the paper goes back to its original state and there's no imprint. The ESTA test was carried out on the diary on the suggestion of Nick Warren to me. So it was done. But it passed it. There was no imprint there anymore. It vanished. The passage of time had taken it away. Nick Warren's response was the paper was too thick. Nonsense. You write on any piece of paper, no matter how thick it is, and you will leave an imprint. The paper will actually go down. And over the passage of time, and only time, will make that go back to its original state. Okay. The watch. The watch was investigated. And what we have is two tests done by UMIS science laboratories in Manchester, and then, at the suggestion again of the contractors, we went to Dr. Wilde and Bristol University, who also concluded, absolutely the same to Goose, that the scratches in the watch are tens of decades old. They don't know how old, they're tens of decades old. And they were able to establish that because a minute particle that can only show up on a micrograph was lodged in one of the initials which had broken off and lost itself in there and over the period of time that piece of metal had deteriorated to enable scientists to establish that it would have taken time to do it. Okay, it's a modern forgery. Therefore, these people understood metallurgy as well. So Mike Barrett, Anne Barrett, Albert Johnson, his wife, Tony Devereux, Billy Graham, are now metallurgists. They're Victorian ink and paper experts. They understand ion migration. They understand ESTA tests. And they know more about Jack the Ripper. Anybody that has ever written a book, anywhere. Because when anybody has written a book, and I include people in this room, they make mistakes. Genuinely, but they've made mistakes. It hasn't been done deliberately, it's been done by accident. And I've got Mr. Ben and Mr. Skinner in the room who will tell you how many alterations needed to be made to the A to Z on the second edition because of the research into this document, where things were found out to be wrong. 
Everybody has been wrong. Everybody has had information they've written that's been corrected. But we're two years down the line, and I'm still waiting for someone to find one piece of historical information in this document that I can't answer. And I can't satisfy you later on in the evening that there isn't anything in this document that is not supported by historical evidence. And moreover, there is information contained within it that isn't superficial, as you have, many of you have had it put upon you that it's easy to open. You know, all you've got to do is pick up three books. Really? You may know the reference in there about Sir Jim. Do you know how we we found out he did maybe like to be called Sir Jim? Do you know how we found out? Because Keith Skinner got on a plane to Wyoming University and went through Trevor Christie's private collection that is lost there, and Keith also ascertained, I believe Keith, no one had been taken out since. Mm, 1970, I think it was deposited. And in those documents, it's a statement, you know what's so astonishing about that? Is he turned down 100,000 dollars for a forgery. He turned down $100,000 for a £200 forgery. And it was still that his wife, 60 year old wife, go out and back horses on Sunday morning. Now, this is all very remarkable to me. Because the people that, you know, you have to look for most of the portion. The guys that did their hypnotizers, let's, let's be honest, they've got three women quid or they're all there about it. It goes to newspapers, they publish it, three witnesses found out to be a forgery. Historical references prove it to be a forgery. They identify who the forger was, it's over. The person that really owns this diary is in this room tonight. And has never had one penny of one farthing, brass farthing. I'd like to introduce you to Ann Barrett. Please give a hand. Um, I hardly know where to begin actually. Would you like me to tell you a story? In a true story, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In um, 1968, I was about 18, and my father had been with us and was going to marry again, and we were moving out of the house that we lived in all my life. And um, I was tidying up and sorting everything out. In the bedroom I had, there was a huge cupboard, and it was something that I absolutely hated. I was very proud of it. I thought this day I've got to go and sort out what's fine. And um, I opened the cupboard, and at the back of it, I found a big black trunk. And I opened the trunk and took out a lot of very old clothing, which was, um, I think it's tropical gear. And eventually, when I get to the bottom of the trunk, I found a diary, or what was the diary, and a crucifix. I picked, up, I picked them up, I picked up the diary, had a little look at it, and threw it on the bed, and came back to it some time later, and just literally skimmed through it. 
um, I, I took the dice to my father because I couldn't think where else it would come from. I asked him what he, um, you know, where he got it from. And he told me that he'd been given to him by his mother in 1950, which would be early four. And he said, been left to him by his granny. Um, when I, you know, I did say to him, you know, it's been found by Jack the Ripper. And he just laughed at me and turned me to put it away. I know that sounds a bit lovely, but I didn't argue with it because in those days I didn't argue with my father. And he put it away. And um, I never really seen it again until in the, uh, in the 80s, wasn't it? I don't know how much of the story you actually know, what you read in the um, paperback edition. But what happened then was that my father was eventually going to uh, his accommodation, he took the diary. Didn't really say much about it. But um, I didn't tell my husband. At that time, our marriage was breaking up. We didn't really communicate very well. And I just hit it away, waited all the few things. I, I think the, di the diary is basically evil. I've always felt that. And I didn't want anybody to know about it. And, um, it was some time later when the last, last ditch attempt, I think, to save my marriage, I gave it to the husband to write a story about. And unfortunately, the diary was published. It's something I never wanted to happen. But it did. And um, the rest of the day, I like you know. Well, I think, and um, it's important that you should know that, and um, if you want to tell the story about Tony Devil, I think it's important to clear oh, up yeah. in the mind. <laughs> Yeah, I, was, I, was eventually came out. I decided to give the diary to my husband, but I didn't want him to know it had come from me because I felt, I felt there was something in the family, I wasn't sure what it was, but I just didn't want him to know. I wanted this was going to be something he could do by himself. So I went to, one night, I said to him, I was going to shop, I was just going out to the corner shop, and his friend Terry Devo lived just a few streets away, and I decided to give him the diary and ask him to give it to my husband. I found some old pound paper lying in the bottom of the drawer, that was a tap spring. I gave it to Toby. A man I'd, let, I'd met twice before in my life, a powerful pound, which I can describe by the way. Nobody's interested. Um, I went out of the house and asked him, would he give it to Michael as soon as possible? He just wanted to do something with it. And then he was true to his word. I think the one thing I regret through all of this is the trouble caused to the doctor suddenly because. I just couldn't say anything while I was still living with my husband. I just couldn't say anything. And afterwards, um, when we parted, I just didn't want to know. I just pretended this hadn't happened. It was a while after that. I think it was about the July Paul um, <coughs> had been ferreting about amongst all my friends and relatives and driving them up the bloody wall. They were ringing me out and saying, you know, this man's investigating this and this man's investigating that. So I rang him up one night and I was extremely rude to him. He was extremely rude to me, by the way. And um, he told me a few things and I thought, I don't know if, I don't know if we've got a connection here, which I didn't really know what the connection was, whether it was a family. I mean, basically I'd always thought it'd be still from back of his house. I recognised the name of the only word that comes from because the school is just not being chosen. But um, it sort of put all this connection together. So I went back to my father and I said to him, 
you know, to stop all this reflux going on to people. I'm going to have to tell them something. So I met Paul and um, I told them what we know today, but it's more or less. Thanks, we'll have our back for any questions you want to ask, so I think it's important. Anne is absolutely right. I believe this because I looked at the mathematical, I mean, I'm a mathematician by background. I looked at the, 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 the probability of this being anything other than German is almost impossible. There's just too much coincidence. You can't arrange history to fit what is real. You can't, you, you can't organize it. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. I don't know if I can find it. As I speak, I continue to speak because I'm looking for it. But it just, it just wasn't right. And here we are, this Tony Devereux, who must have been in the room to organize his forgery, he arranges to drop dead to give Mike the, the, the perfect alibi. And in the events that that doesn't work, Anne's father, who did die a few weeks ago, I'm sorry to say, because he's a lovely man. But Anne's father says, well, if that doesn't work, I can say that my father was the illegitimate son of Florence Maybrick. Because Florence did call herself Mrs. Graham when she came out of prison. And Anne's maiden name is Graham. And her father's name is William Graham. Oh, and just in case they don't believe you, I can arrange that what I will do is just before I die, I will come out with the truth and then I'll die. So no one will question me. Well, unless anyone can make sense of that, because I can't. I have a picture here. Oh, William Graham, Anne's grandfather. I also have a picture of Lawrence I'll leave these albums out for you later. You decide yourself. There is a resemblance. It's just luck once more. Life is just luck that Maybrook's name began with the letters J and ended with the letters CK. Just luck. Go into the telephone book. Find out how many others you can find from that. What the odds are. Just luck that Florence's initials were on the wall of Kelly's bedroom. Just luck. It's absolute luck, of course. This is luck for the forges. It's just luck that Eggos had two inverted Ps on her face, which until this diary, even though Cullen could have used it, or Flarson could have used it, or indeed Keith Skinner and, and um, Melvin Martin Howells could have used it, but Martin Ripper Legacy, they didn't notice it could have we have also discovered in a report by Abilene on the 16th of September, I believe, that there wasn't just an M on the envelope. It's in the Chapman's murder. It's a J. It should be J.M. Where on the envelope? We will be publishing the reports. But I'll tell you what's happened. That is actually in the handwriting of the leave of Abilene. 
Is it me or a Is it a bot? So in the handwriting of that line, then I said, well, that's actually not a J, it's a 2. Just like that line's 2. This is what the detractors will say, because they'll say anything. Because they realise the astonishing coincidence. But you see, it isn't a 2. Because both Aberline and supporting uh, police officers confirm they are initials, not a number and a letter, but initials. We've got the FN, we've got the N. What is it about the luck these forges had? How brilliant could it be? Could any 20 of you in this room who knew this thing inside out have a glass of and done I challenge you to do one for a sheet of paper. Put it through the tests. This guy has gone through 63 pages of it. I'll answer the will for you. We'll get to that. And I will... That's the only thing that doubted people. But hasn't it crossed anybody's mind? Before I explain to you why I know it wasn't written by Bainbridge, and I'll prove to you it wasn't written by Bainbridge, didn't it cross anybody's mind that that isn't the handwriting of a man about to die? Of a junkie? of a man who is taking so many drugs that he can barely stand up. Is that the handwriting? And even the handwriting experts that compared it to the diary also agreed it wasn't that of an ill man. So he couldn't handle it. They couldn't put two and two together. Now, let's take a look at this in one of the pictures that I can find. And I'll really explain to you. Let's have a look at this, shall we? And James Maybrick on the right. The drawing in the Sunday Telegraph, Saturday Telegraph, of October the 6th. Just luck, I suppose. I thought this must have been very lucky. Here we have a sketch put together by eyewitnesses at the time for a reporter, Jake Richardson, who was working for the Telegraph. That photograph is published. The man on the right is James Maybrick. Now, you're welcome to look at this in detail afterwards, but you try and find me a better sketch of a photograph if you can. But I suppose we have to accept the forgers were lucky. Because that is the only sketch, sorry, that is the only sketch, other than the ogre looking one, um, that we're aware of, I think. The one when I said the ogre, I mean, man with a hairy beard and not hair and whatever. That's the only one that's been done from an eyewitness. Luck. Again, possible. How did I finally get to talk to Billy Graham? Because I want to tell you about the interview with Billy Graham. I want to let Keith Skinner tell you about the interview with Billy Graham. And didn't know where this diary came from. I didn't know she didn't know. But she was right. I was investigating everybody and anybody because I believe that one of two things, there's only one or two reasons for this diary to exist. Either it be inherited 
right? It was with people because it shouldn't be with the right people. It shouldn't be with those people. Or they've been taken from back to the police house. They're found in that police house. At the time that I knew that there was work going on in that house, unfortunately for me, because it led me down the wrong trail for about six months. We have done an entire suite of every single major birth, marriage, and death certificate over the last two centuries. We own them all, every single one of them. When we were going through, doing it decade by decade, when it got to the 1930s, I discovered that marriages of five women, all living in a place called Whittlesea, Cambridgeshire, Pittsburgh. <coughs> had birth certificates. None of them. Not one of them. None of them were born Maybrick. Why? We couldn't track, we didn't know who they were because we couldn't find their birth certificate. Normally you find a wedding certificate, you find their age of 23, you go back 23 years and you'll find a birth. But we knew we wouldn't find it because we'd already done the 1910s and we'd done the 1900s and we'd done the whole of the 19th century. So why couldn't we find their birth certificates? Because I couldn't move back, I moved forward. If we married in the 1930s, it was a probability that the children were alive. I have interviewed and I've got hours and hours of tapes. They knew, they've always known. They were told when they used to investigate, they used to ask their mother, the mother of these children, and by the way, I have pictures of all of them here to show you. You'll have to look at them later. <coughs> they were asked. Why don't our birth and marriage certificates match? They were told anything. I think the greatest story of all told us. It's a secret. It's a terrible secret. And should you ever find out, you wish you hadn't. Now, the family were born with the name Wollstone, or Wollstone, or Wollstone. Every single certificate is spelled differently. The man that the woman was living with, and we do know she wasn't married, died in 1916. And in 1917, she took what were then seven children to the local church and baptized them all. Now, don't get me wrong, Maybrick is one family. They can all be tracked back to the same family. The stories from Peterborough are fascinating. The ones which, again, we will publish and we will show on film, we will show interview. What appears to be Maybrick's granddaughter is still alive. Again, I will make show you pictures tonight which show her sons, and you can make the comparison to the only known living Maybrick, Brian Maybrick. A few weeks ago, we had a get together in Peterborough. Now they get together in Peterborough for all the legitimate matrix that we have discovered throughout the country. Loads of them. 
like half what they own the photographs are quite incredible but the radio force itself just comes to the and any problems that you have as a setup get overcome in a moment the wonderful thing about these people don't care it was a time that maybe they would have been but they're not stories in the family are fascinating we've even got paintings and so much material from the time then you know your geography I think we'll be able to prove yet but we're looking main notes but just south of Wittlesey few miles three or four is a place called Bob Manchester I didn't even know it existed but just three miles south of Wittlesey where clearly there are major illegitimate children there is a place called Bob Manchester If you abbreviated it, what would you call it? Now, in the diary, the man claims to have killed one victim in Manchester, the first one. He doesn't claim to have killed the seventh one in Manchester, if you read it carefully. He thinks about killing one in Manchester. And when he does go away at Christmas, when he comes back, killed somebody but we don't know where now they want to just wanted a home in on Manchester so <coughs> you were forging this diary why put Manchester in there if you were forging this diary after 1988 who in their right mind claimed to have written the Bible's letters if you were writing this diary in 1989, who in their right mind would have said they killed Stride? Because historians were beginning to think he didn't. Because historians were begin to, had begun to feel that the dear boss letter was a hoax, Miss Anderson said so. I'll answer Anderson if any of you want to know. Anderson never mentioned the dear boss letter on the 25th of September. The letter is currently being displayed in the Black Museum or the Museum of New Scotland Yard. I can't remember it either, but I didn't mention the letter at all. He wasn't talking about the Big Boss letter at all. I'll tell you why it wasn't. I'll give my explanation of why it wasn't. Because in 1910 is when he wrote that. And in 1910, Major Henry Smith of the City Police wrote a book criticising Anderson and he didn't know what he was talking about as far as a Polish Jew was concerned and that he believed that the last kidney Major Henry Smith believed that the last lip kidney was genuine Anderson's statement was a response he said I have proof that it's Jew and moreover, the letter that is hanging in the Black Museum at New Scotland Yard is a hoax. You read the star of the 10th of September. 10th of September? 
10th of October, which is 88, you'll find the reference to the last letter and postcard, because it was a postcard as well as a letter, find the reference 10th of October, star 888, but it was a hoax, unlike the previous correspondence written by Jack the Ripper. What's happened over the years, ladies and gentlemen, is that one author has made an observation and it has continued to be believed without having the source checked. Even the most recent book written by Philip Sutton, which is a tremendous piece of work, enormous amounts of material in there, and a lot of it here. And it was great assist to us. But even in there, he makes the observation, the letter was published on the 1st of October, and therefore anyone could have written a postcard on the 1st of October because the letter was published in the newspaper. Only in text. Not with the handwriting. So whilst you may well have been able to make a reference when you wrote the postcard to the letter, you wouldn't be able to copy the handwriting. So handwriting wasn't published in the newspapers until October 4th, together with the postcard. The information contained in the postcard is what convinced police it must be from How do you know there's an attempt to cut off the ears if you want to How indeed do you know the Stroy squealed? But well, that was only discovered later because of the statement by the Well, I'm going to say Mrs. Mortimer. Mrs. Mortimer, thank you. Who did confirm that she heard a screen car to strike the hill. Man's like that postcard, didn't that? You also knew it was attempting years. Now, what amazes me about the correspondence is that you've written this diary, you've now got the expertise of. Metallurgy, Victorian ink and paper and science and all this, and we've gone through it a million times. But hang on, you send your own dear boss, so you know exactly where to find it in any of the books. You don't know what I think. It's the thing in the world to do. You're going to say you wrote the diary. Now you could copy it's one of two things. You could copy the will. Paper, because he knew that where to get that shortly if he's got all these elements, but he knows exactly where to get the will from. We all did. Or he copies the handwriting of the boss, which he said he wrote. <coughs> now, handwriting experts at the time said the letter was written in a disguised manner. It's in all the newspapers. If you're Jack the Ripper, whoever you were, you're really going to send the letter to the person about handwriting. Look at the will. Try to overcome some of the objections because it's before the last. Thing that bothered me about the will was a book written by a man called A.W. McDougall in 1891, just two years after the Florence Mendel trial. I'll be indebted forever for Camille giving me that very quickly. McDougall. Um, crucifies the will. He even said, Dave, this wasn't written by Rebecca, 
have to look much further up the ladder than down it. That was a complete change from where he was. But nevertheless, that's what he said. Next to the highest in the land, something said by somebody else. Michael made Britt's funeral somewhere in Kenya on bones. There are about thousands and thousands of people lying on the streets, my favorite field. Thousands of masons everywhere. Everywhere. Michael Mayberg, my friends, was a 32 degree mason. The highest in the land was 33. That's how far I thought you know, Michael Mayberg was. A lot of, there's been a lot of little stories about Jack the Ripper over the years, ranging from King, Queen, J.K. Stephen, we had, haven't we? Actually, Quite a remarkable piece of luck for our forgers. When you separate Brett, look how it all fits. Who was the judge at the trial? <coughs> judge James Fitzjames Stephen. He does an about turn on the last few days. What's his son's name? J.K. Stephen. Who was he tutor to? Favourite synergismate family come from two places. Manchester, and we've got the Wimbledon, of course. Big brother uh, Ripper Suspect is born there somehow. It's interesting his initials as well, isn't it? Is that just another coincidence? MJ Jewel? It was conjecture that led with Norton to say it was true. He didn't know. He's been told something. It's conjecture. It's conjecture now as to whether all these are just proofs. Man witnessed that the, the signature on Tony Devereux's will was an A gray. And right. No, it wasn't. It was all laughter. It's one of those things. There are coincidences. They do happen. But the pieces start to fit. Why was the Florence Baker trial such a mystery? Why could people not understand why she was kept in prison for 15 years against the will? Remember the second story about a woman who was kept in prison against her life, uh, against the will for many years? And they made it fit and clear. Made the pieces fit. Somebody else is silly at the time. But maybe there's a grain of element of the truth there somewhere, somehow. I always believe it. I don't believe it's totally uh, 
the most dangerous thing is a reference to the divorce letter. So he wrote it down. If you're a forger. It's even more dangerous, you see, because we actually done and have discovered three other unknown letters. Without the question of doubt, or would appear to be without the question of doubt, written by the same man, the boss. Now, I'll start with one that I have never seen but has been published on occasions. I'm not a butcher, I'm not a year. I'm not yet a philosopher. But there's another version of the same poem, isn't it? I think it starts, I'm not an alien maniac, nor yet a foreign skipper. And it goes on, it's five lines, and it's got a PS on the end of it. Very similar, it's got a PS. One was, I think, first published in the Liverpool Echo. Any idea? No, I don't think it was the Echo either. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think it, no, I don't think it was a Liverpool newspaper. But uh, I, I understand the essence of what you're okay. saying. <laughs> there were two. There were two versions of this. One most certainly came out of Sir Melville Norton's Day of My Life, which opened paragraph in the chapter. Thank you. And then there was this other version. Now, strangely enough. Mr. Harris, when he first looked at this, jumped down me when I said that the dear boss looks like it was the first letter. He said, oh, no, the first letter, you will find a reference to it in Woodall. E.W. Woodall, most popular in the 30s. So it wasn't dear boss. First one was received after Annie Chapman. In the diary, and that's what Woodall says. First piece of correspondence. These had signed Chapman that was received shortly after the letter Chapman. Have a look at the text in the diary. I'll send them a funny little line just after the letter from Chapman. Then we get the boss. And then later on in the diary, he says, I'll send them my line again. That will make them believe it's the truth, I tell so whatever rhyme he sent them, he sent them again. Now maybe it's got nothing to do with the two that I just quoted you. On October the 5th, Paul Begg discovered a letter written to the Central News Agency, though a memo written from the Central News Agency to the police. It's never been published, still hasn't. It's a letter written to the Central News Agency on the 5th of October. And in that letter, he says, next time, I will do a triple event next time. This is a letter written in 1888, no question about that. And he also says, he talks about the murder that has just been discovered in Whitehall. Remember Whitehall murder? October 4th, I think it was. Police at the time said it was Jack the Ripper. The man that wrote the letter said it wasn't me. That's why I wrote the letter. I didn't do that one. The man that wrote that letter to the Central News Agency said, I didn't do that one. And if that woman is a decent woman, I will hunt down the killer and kill him. If she saw her, it's a little bit worse for that effect. <laughs> <coughs> Now that was a letter written on the 5th of October, Central News Agency. 
on the corresponding paragraph in the diary. He says, I wonder if I could do three next time. That's written in 1888. So I says, In the same proportion, he also talks about God protecting him. After all, what is that why it's not here? Is that why it's still not here? That's what's in the diary, that's what's in the letter. Not identical, but it's there. On the 6th of October, I've already showed you, we get this drawing of a man put together by eyewitnesses that appears in Telegraph on the 6th of October. And it looks remarkably like Mabry. Now that's even that, as the forces concerned. What's important? On the 6th of October, a letter was sent. Again, we don't know who to. The postmark on it is NW. That's when Michael Mabry did. And in that letter on the 6th of October, it says, You think yourself very clever. Now I know you know who I am. And I mean to cut off your ears and send them to your wife. You see, I know you're married. There's a couple of threats, and it says it was in your street. And it has been confirmed by every handwriting expert, a pro-war grant's diary, that is written by the same person, but then you've got to Now, that's not how you expect her. Neither is the one on the fifth. You don't deny a murder if you're a hatcher, but even today, you wouldn't know that the one on October 4th wasn't killed by you. The October the 6th letter was sent from NW. It was sent to somebody and intended to frighten them. And if it wasn't written by Jeff the Ripper, what the hell is the point of the It's not going to find anybody. What happened a few days later at the inquest when they interviewed Joseph Lavenda? He said, There's a special reason for this man not describing the man he saw. Not so what the reason was, but we do know for two examples, Joseph Lavenda had his protection. I've got no evidence unless you're sensible. Not at all. I'm just trying to make sense of those historical facts. And that's the historical fact. So is the letter. In the diary, all we've got is a reference to a man that stopped his funny little games. We don't know who that man is. But there was a man who stopped his funny little games. Now, there are a couple of minor things, but interesting, which I'll finish off with. And if you've got any questions, maybe we can have a break for you to ask me sometime. How do you know this was dry? I said it was red. I don't think you called this dry. It was. It's true. He found it. Yes, it was red. Everybody else. On the first page, he says he's very worried about Paris. We have a letter written from Margaret Bell, baby, Thomas Mabry, saying she's sorry to hear that Gladys is unwell in the Italy. Just pick this up in any book, can you? We see 
but he says at Christmas that he's going to be away at Christmas. Remember, he's going to visit Thomas in Manchester. I've never believed Thomas is in Brother. I've never believed Manchester is Manchester. I don't believe he is yet. I don't believe Thomas is yet. I don't believe he's brother. He says he's going to go away at Christmas to Thomas. Now, the only book that makes any reference to where Maybrook was at Christmas is Morden, who guesses that he's probably behind locked doors like anybody else in the New York Times. They don't fall for Jack But the only reference in any book to where he was at Christmas was Morden, who says he's behind locked doors. He says he was away. We know he was. We found a letter in the Baroness of Old Rock. As a secretary in August 1889, whilst Florence is in prison. But it appears to be making, it is responding to something she's being asked, and she says that the reason Florence was whining and dining in December is that her husband left her home again. Florence did call herself Mrs. Graham when she came out of prison. And when she came back here in 1927, and was asked why she'd come back, she said, I wish to be reunited with my children. And they have always thought terrible things when you invade this and they have. Only had one child in 1927. Over. Gladys was the only one so who were the children that she was to be reunited with? She broke up Gladys. Gladys married one of them, who was the other one. When they found Florence Maybrook dead, the Christian collection at Wyoming University showed that one of the few belongings left is a little black address book with all of the Jews. I think we've got three lucky fools here. Florence Maybrick wrote one of the damning pieces of evidence of the prisoner. She wrote really <coughs> in May 1889. And she says to her, the story my husband told me was pure fabrication and only designed to frighten the truth out of me. Do not leave the country on that account, my dearest. So what we do know is Maybrick told Florence something in May. And Florence told Brady that whatever it was, he's packing up. He sold his business. <laughs> sold his business, sold his home, he's left the country, he's going abroad. I don't know what because your husband has told you something. He's leaving the air country. Coincidence? How many of them are there? How lucky can forges be, as well as technically brilliant? I cannot find anything that can make me doubt this at all. And moreover, I think that what I try to indicate tonight is I ain't that clever. There's not any 20 people that clever. 
go and make these things happen. You can't turn back the book and make that fit back. No one has to try to build. The best example I can give is, or, or the best example of, of being able to, to put forward a, a character is, is probably Martin Fyder. He puts forward David Cohen, who helps David Cohen. Try and check out on David Cohen. They picked James Maybrick every net down day. We've got bottles, we've got prescriptions, we know where he was, we know when he went to the races, we know when he got picked up a bottle prescription in, in, in Hampshire. But they're nothing precious. And he claims to have written letters in London that we know he was. Well, letters are written by Jack the Ripper in London that we are told he is there. My case wrestling. <laughs> So we break now for 20 minutes and then come back. Information for the factor in the diary says it puts the breast on the bedside table. I think you're reading this, if I'm correct, what you're saying is because Dr. Paul's report actually said that there was a breast by the foot and a breast by the head. And in the diary, he said that the table was bare, so he left him there. Am I correct? And you're saying that, therefore, that, that shows the diary's wrong, um, because it, it, it detracts from Dr. Bond's report. So clearly, the person, in your view, who wrote the diary, had to overlook Bond's report. He didn't know it existed, or he missed it, or whatever. He didn't. If you read on two pages, you'll find that there is a poem in the diary which is crossed out. And in the diary he says, I thought of leaving them by the hall's feet, but the table was bare so I left them there. I thought of leaving them by the hall's feet. In his mind, he's remembering, I thought of leaving them by the hall's feet. How does the whole section of Mary Kelly start? I have read about my latest, my golden thoughts. I have read about my latest. Jack the Ripper was James Maybrick. He was a junkie. He was out of his head. Everybody agreed. Every policeman agreed at the time that whatever happened that night, that man was out of his skull. He's not. Now, he's in that room and he says, he picks up the newspapers the next day and he's reading about his latest victim. And they tell him he left the breasts on the table. Now, he's going, hang on a I thought the leaf by the horse feet, but the table was bare, so I left them there. The press have told him he left them on the table. Now, I don't know what went on in that room that night, neither do you. What I do know is whatever went on, that man was one big sicko. As sick as any sexual serial killer is about. Did he really remember every detail? He thought he left them by the horse feet, that's why the poem's in the diary. 
I had thoughts of leaving them by the horse feet, but the table was bare, so I left them there. He starts the whole section. I read about my latest. Now, we all know that the newspapers say the best one on the table. Now, he's being told the best one on the table. What's he going to do? But it's still bothering about the feet. That's why I wrote the line. So he didn't miss Bond's report. He didn't overlook it, and it wasn't a mistake. Because if you were correct and he'd overlooked Bond's report, then there would be no difference to the feet whatsoever. Or I'll be saying that was luck again. He has got that line in there. You will find it. It's in the diary. It's not at the point immediately about Kelly, about two pages on when he's doing that bullshit poetry. About the poetry, excuse my language, I'm sorry. About the poetry, one of the things that Judge Richard Hamilton told me in um, uh, Liverpool was what convinced him the story was real. Why should anyone write pages and pages of rambling trash? What for? You know, it in the hypnotizers. What is this page and page of rambling nonsense? What for? What's it going to impress? What's it going to do? And it's, it's all crossed out and scribbled. He's practicing the letters that went to the blue. Remember Dr. Gutman? Yes, Andy. Yeah, fine. Um, just to ask you three things. One, one actually, to put you right, and two, to question. The, um, the line drawing that you quoted that was shown in the Daily Telegraph as being a likeness that you've drawn completely that might look like Maverick. I just remind you, there's one or two drawings on the same page. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, they're actually drawn by Jake or Richard himself. Yeah. Um, and I haven't come prepared, so I just have to go and ask with me that's got the, the quote that it says in the telegraph. The woodcut sketches purporting to resemble the person last seen with Whitechapel Burning Wood, which appeared in the Daily Telegram, were not authorised by the police. Um, I, 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 well, I'll stop you there. First of all, you'll find that the two drawings are absolutely identical except for two things. The drawing on the left shows a man who has only got hair below his lip, not hair above his lip. And it also shows a man wearing a different hat. It's the same person. Well, except you... It's been drawn to look like it's the same person. One with a moustache and one without it. Yeah. The fact that it's authorised by the police or not, I don't see the building. The man has picked up the newspaper on October 6th, and all I've simply said is it's remarkable how similar that man looks to Maybrook. Now, assuming that Maybrook is a river for the purpose of this communication, he's gone, looked at that, which, according to Jerry Will Richardson, whether he drew it or the police drew it, doesn't matter. He doesn't. The man that's reading the newspaper doesn't know who it is. He's simply looking at that newspaper and going, bloody hell. He did see me. He knows who I am. And he has written to the person that he believes gave that description. Whoever that person was, said, I'm going to get you. Now, if you don't accept that, then one has to be able to explain the October the 6th letter that was sent to somebody, that was threatening somebody, and who was saying, I know you know who I am. How could he have known? The only way he knew, and the, the coincidence of the date is too much. The letter was dated October the 6th, the newspaper was dated October the 6th, there is a sketch that remarkably looks like 
doesn't matter who drew it. It doesn't no, matter if it was all right by the police. It's irrelevant. Just if it's where you chose the one that does look like paper and not print the boat. I'm sure you, if you have a look at the picture, if you have a look at the picture of paper, which I'm welcome to do, which no one actually did during the break, which surprised me, you will find that on the left-hand side of his face, because his moustache is so fair, it doesn't show up in the picture. It doesn't actually show up in the picture. It's only because you can, the shadow on the left-hand side, can you see it? This man is very fair, very fair. He's got very light reddish hair. And he has um, got a very fair moustache with a pale complexion and blotchy face, which he gets because of arsenic. I think you've heard that description once before, right? But he gets that because of the arsenic taking that he, he gets. But just on descriptions at the moment, very recently we have discovered something quite fascinating. It's a letter that was written internally, a memo, internal memo. We do have every Paul Bain can vouch because he hasn't had it back yet. But we do have a copy of every uh, Scotland Yard document that exists on this campaign. And we have read every document that does exist on the case. And in it, there's an internal memorandum. Again, it could be a coincidence. But they are writing about somebody who they're looking at who has had a small piece bitten off the end of his nose. It's underlined by the recipients of the pillow, not by the writer of the pillow. There's a small piece bit off the end of his nose. That's all it says. For some reason that I don't know, and it's never been published, that was important to somebody within the police force. If you Freemasonry uh, symbolism. No, no, nothing to do with Freemasonry symbolism. <laughs> symbolism at all. Dr. Humphreys gave up evidence at the Maybrook Club. And he talked about the amount of times that he saw Maybrook, and what the times he saw him, he was in that water to uh, uh, see him for a small piece of, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, small injury to the nose. To the nose. Uh, I don't think maybe it's too hard. I don't, no. Um, I, don't believe, I don't believe there is any Masonic connection to the crimes themselves, just to put you right, whatsoever. I do know it is a fact that his brother was one of the most powerful Masons in this country and was certainly capable of keeping things a little bit hush hush. Um, he did live, by the way, Michael Maybrick in Clarence Gate. Strange enough, we know somebody who was killed outside the house, actually. Um, how would you address <coughs> the yet unseen material? You've, you've answered this privately, but I think it's worth an answer for everyone. Uh, Stuart Evans' little child letter that says that they named the journalist that invented the name Jack the Ripper. Uh, I can't comment specifically on, on, on your point because I've, I, I've clearly told Stuart that I've given my word I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that there is nothing in the little child letter, uh, in my opinion, that would disprove the authenticity of this document. And that's all you can say at this time. That's all I can say at this time. I have pointed out to 
So a couple of people during the break who, who pointed out why did so many people say the big boss letter was hopes. I gave you my reason that why Anderson wasn't referring to the dear boss of the 25th of September. I also quoted you the star of the 10th of October that clearly suggests that if anything is a hoax, it's the last letter, which if, you, if one actually cries and thinks about it, makes a lot more sense. Here we've got a gruesome kidney sent with a semi-literate letter. Did anyone ever notice, by the way, that the letter, whilst it was semi-literate, the follow-up to it was actually sent to Dr. Oppenshaw at something something hospital, something something there, and actually spelt perfectly in every respect. The envelope is addressed absolutely correctly, and yet the guy can't even spell the word my in the letter. You have to make up your mind which is more likely to be the hoax of the two. If you look at the, even if you want to use quotes, actually, in the book, it, it, it's got the dear boss letter at the time of the September. A few lines later, when he's describing the letter, he says it was the work of an illiterate man. They can't be referring to the 25th of September letter. He can't be. If we have a look at um, whatever, uh, uh, who else has said it was a hoax? Uh, can I make an observation here? Which I think is it Andy? Yeah, which which spins off Andy, and that here we are actually talking about and discussing fairly arcane um, uh, material and detail on the Ripper, whether James Maybrick could have been Jack the Ripper or not, which I think is what Andy was probably um, tussling yeah, so with, it, tussling it, with it, you about. It's but what's interesting now is that the discussion seems to have moved from whether we've got a forger standing in our midst. In other words, why, 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 why is it sudden, suddenly, why have we overlooked this? Why is this being forgotten about? Because if it's been, if this thing was knocked together over an idle weekend a couple of years ago, why? I mean, why are we? Why are we? Yeah. Why are we discussing See, that? Andy, and that seems to be a central point. Right. What we're coming back. What we're coming back to now, Andy, is we're coming back to the detail that was actually discussed um, two years ago, right at the very beginning. Looking at this finite detail, but it's arguable. You have to accept it's arguable. One way or the other, it's arguable. For you to dismiss this diary, we have to believe. And let's get this straight. That the forger is standing right there, and that the father backed her up, and that everything else is absolute coincidence, and that this woman here has got the ability to fool to, to fool scientists all over the world. I don't believe that for a second. I really don't believe that even you that put your hands up at the beginning of this session believe that either because you probably haven't focused on just how complicated it would need to be. You have to know that it's going to be an Esther test. I'm in charge of man, I was well educated. I don't know what the hell an Esther test meant until I got involved with this. Nor do I know about ion migration, Victorian Indian paper, or metallurgy. I don't even know what the word means now. 
But that's what we have to accept. This man had... Billy Graham... I come back, because I miss the story anyway. I believe Anne agreed to see me because of aggravation that I put on the family. Not on her family, on her husband's family. First thing she told me, I knew it was real. I knew she was being real. She has got nothing to do with Mike. Never did. I never believed it did. She knows that. So a lot of people who are in the room are working with me. From that point, what I'm saying is, okay, Anne knows it, I just but Anne didn't know either. Now, Anne came down to London to meet me, she came down with her daughter. And I had found this family in Peterborough that I told you about. And by coincidence, there was a man that we still don't know what's happened to him, a man called Shepherd Shelgrave Maybrick, who disappeared. He's only two weeks younger than Anne's father. And he had an eight-year-old brother who died, called Jack. Jack Maybrook, death certificate here. Anne's father lost a brother when he was eight, who died in exactly the same year. I had a tape from what would be, or what may be, either Florence or James's, who's my granddaughter, that's her. And she's holding, I believe, a self portrait of Florence. That's Anne Maybrick. She was married, Annie Maybrick. She's still alive today. Now, she goes to take the interview, and in that tape, she said she remembers catching cockles by the seaside. Just remember. It's something that Billy's Anne's father told her. So when I played this tape and showed these certificates to Anne, she thought, she told you she didn't know that she's nervous. She thought, yes, I found out in the files. That made sense to her for the first time as to why this diary was in her family. She asked her father twice about the diary, both times. The first time was doing this pause, and he said, go away. Second time he said, pack it away. He didn't question your parents, I didn't. I was born around about the same time. I didn't question my father. He didn't talk about something. Don't ask him again. <clears throat> now, Anne didn't come into possession of the diary until 1989. But she thought that I found her family, her father, her father really. And so she arranged for me to go up and say, I'm absolutely convinced he is descended to James. Totally convinced. I was wrong. I'm standing there for the 65 of my sound. And Billy had clearly made up his mind that he was going to say something he'd never said before in his life. And by that time, we barely spoke up until that point. I was being threatened, I mustn't do this, I mustn't do that, I mustn't be hard on the dad, who was 80 at the time, I met him for the first time. And I <coughs> went up there questioning him along the lines of his James. I knew about the Graham connection with Florence and the fact she called himself Graham, but I thought that was her way of saying that's who James' descendants are. I showed him Nigel Morland, page 228, this friendless lady, if anyone probably won't make a note, which is the first time we picked it up. It talks about Florence when she lived in prison and went to stay at the convent in Cornwall. And I'm reading him the sentence, and I stopped just before it got to Mrs. Gray. And she said, 
said, this is great. If only my father had his life. And if that wasn't the most honest, real thing that I've ever heard, I don't know what was. A couple of minutes later, he tells us that maybe Phillips had an illegitimate son when she was 15 years old. Got pregnant when she was 15 years old. And Anne screamed at him, Who told you that? I'll never forget it until the day I die. It's the first time she ever heard it. <clears throat> and she's crying now because she knows her right. The first day she ever heard it, and she, he said, she was, yeah, she was but you know what's most remarkable of all? Thoughts was remarkable, wasn't she? Didn't we all believe, don't all the books say that Thoughts Maverick came over here in 1880 and met James on the boat? The problem was, Billy's father was born in 1879, where? Hartlepool. Well, that's going to be easy to disprove, isn't it? Go and disprove it. Go and disprove it. <coughs> you want the connection with Hartlepool is to Florence? Do you know where Florence is brought up? Not in America. Yeah. I'm yet to find her going back to America after 1864 when she was one year old until 1879, August. Something like seven months after her grandfather was born, she didn't go back. I can't find one yet. We found references. She lived in Worcestershire. She brought up in Worcestershire and found that reference. We all missed it. Of course, she's working hard now to see that the father is, you know, she's working hard, very hard to prove the father is a fake. Of course, she is. Makes a lot of sense, that. It's nonsense. It's very difficult sometimes to accept what appears to be unbelievable. And when you look at the Maybrick cases we have, most of you have probably only focused on the Riffle case. Look at the Maybrick case in detail. Look at what was going on. Look what was going on behind the scenes. Look at how it was all common. This is a woman who was kept in prison for 15 years and never even tried for the crime that she'd been kept in prison for. She was tried for murder, found guilty, sentenced to hang. It was commuted to life imprisonment because she said they, they admitted she didn't kill him. They admitted it. The Home Secretary admitted she didn't kill him but said she gave her power that she tried to. The evidence that she gave in court, it wasn't evidence, it was a statement, wasn't admissible in a court of law even then. That's why they came to in prison. And that statement, she'd never been tried for attempted murder. She hadn't even been tried for murder and found guilty. And that was overturned. Why? Why? What was she kept in prison for? Queen Victoria said that woman shall stay in prison until she dies. And what did she say? As she was sentenced to death, she said, much has been held from the jury, but had it been told, may have influenced them. Whatever was withheld was withheld because Florence withheld it because she made a statement she could say whatever she wanted. She made the decision to withhold it. 
forwarded it to us. Maybe public opinion would have done. But they never had the case of prosecution counsel. No one believed they had the case. If I asked the people who said to me, well, if he was Jeffrey, why didn't you say so? I'll give you two reasons. Now there's three. William Graham, Bono, and Gladys. No mother. Make their kids grow up with that. No mother. That's what she was saying. Simple. The other technical argument is it would give you a prosecution counsel case for a motive, which they never had. They didn't actually have a motive. She met three men in London, not one, not just really. She met John Bain Knight, and she met Michael Nicker. There's a problem between them. There's a motive. Look at Sutcliffe. Look at the comparison. Make the comparison. Sutcliffe hit a woman for the first time because he saw Sonia with another man. He wasn't even married to her. He didn't want to hurt her. He knew he'd lose her. Read his own book, Evil, uh, something of like God, the Evil God, sorry, Voices from an Evil God, I think is the name of the book. He says so. I saw another man. I wanted to take it out of her. I couldn't. So I lose her. Pick up a war. Do that. I hit her. And then she killed the first one. It's almost like a parallel. It's almost identical, the motive. The man is angry because the woman that he adores and he adored her. He was 49, she was 24. He adored her. But she wouldn't come down to the to the Victorian standards of a land husband to have other relationships. So she will move out of his bedroom and then flirt it herself. It is exactly the same motive that has driven so many serial killers. His wife's not poor, all who shall suffer. Took it out of And when he killed Kelly, that was the ultimate. Personally, I believe he killed Rose Miley. But I won't even make <coughs> that there. <laughs> Any other question? <laughs> <laughs> <Still> one question. <laughs> so that's a no then, right? How long do we take to task here? Someone, someone's going to find something that they don't like in the diary that convinces them that it's a fake. I have five or six hands up in here. The question of the diary with the pages torn out of it. Um, I can only speculate. I can't. Well, if your man wasn't to make for him, that could have fallen decent. Is it not a decent book? Well, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen the journal. Well, you, you just said it wouldn't. Well, why would he have pages out? Or did he make mistakes? Oh, 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 oh. Who, who said he ripped the pages out? Well, somebody ripped them out. Oh, well, you just said he ripped them out. Well, I'll show you. Supposing the diary made reference to Florence Business and Sunday. Where did the diary come from? Who's got it now? I believe the person who's got it now, because Florence made it's illegitimate great granddaughter. That's why I believe comes the diary. And therefore, it's come from Florence Maybrick. 
And if Florence Wainwright had a diary and there was any information contained within it, there's reason to tell you Why would they actually keep any half of the lot? I don't know. I don't know. How can I answer that? Why, why, why people? I don't know. I don't believe anyone could actually bring themselves to destroy it. We've had this debate. I don't know. I think it would be a very, very difficult thing to destroy. It's often very common facts. I know what your background is. I know where you come from. Is there, is there any um, uh, evidence to prove that? to disprove that it was not a contemporary portrait. I can only go on the... <coughs> think of an obvious motive. <coughs> no, I mean, I think in the very early days, certainly Paul Begg and I created um, that it could be a motive to assist Florence getting out of prison by saying, uh, by forging something that implied her husband was Jack the Ripper. Um, and I, I, I think reasonable and fair. The problem is that once you take this diary from 1987, you have a tremendous difficulty in knowing where the forger got his information from. Um, for example, we know that there are references to the Apical Hall's poem that first appears in McCormick, and I believe 1959 that book was published. There's clearly echoes of that poem that is in there. And it's very interesting that poem anyway. If you read the poem carefully, Jack the Ripper, or the person who wrote the poem, says that after Kelly died, six were killed. But his answer shows it is not a fortune either done at the time. Well, how would you have known about the echo on the wall of Kelly's murder? Because if that wasn't published until, I believe, Donald Grumbelow in 1970. So it contains information only known in modern times. Correct. Oh, okay. so, so, so. Um, and most of the Maybrick, all the important Maybrick information is in there. So people have only, a lot of people made the mistakes of only comparing the document to what is in Ripper books. But they haven't compared it to what is known about the Maybrick family, the fact that his Gladys was ill, the fact that he had a justifiable reason to go to London. I remember that was one of the phrases on the first page. Seeing the innocuous sentence, we found a letter from Gustav Witt, who was his partner in Liverpool up to 1874, who writes to our secretary just after he died, and says, James Maybridge looked after my business interests in London until the day he died. Justifiable reason to travel to the capital with voice. Now we know that Maybridge most certainly did. Why, why don't you sue the Sunday Times? <laughs> um, why don't they had the word faith in the headline. It's very simple, I will as I will with several other people, um, but one always is searching for the people. One could sue and play games and spend lots of money in court by saying that what you said is actually wrong. And you are damaging the cells of a proper book, a proper video worldwide, as well as being obsessive about trying to prevent the film being made. 
buyouts in question. Well, they said it's a fake. I mean, that would They can be. say it's a fake. They have to prove until, that in court, which would be they would, have to, they would have to prove it in court, and they wouldn't win against me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and not only did they have to prove it, but I will ask something openly. Why are people seem to be obsessive and angry about saying this is a fake? But it'd be interesting to actually have that rehearsed in a court of law with something. It would. But for character. Nick, <laughs> you've been around a long time and you've seen enough court cases. What's it take to take the court to trial? Take this to trial. Well, I don't see how they could win. They can't, but you've still got the funding. And maybe you're talking two to three hundred thousand pounds just to go to the courtroom. Let alone having silky court for God knows how many days. But now, it makes Do you mean contemporary point. fake or modern fake? Because it is important, that yes. distinction. It's very, it, it is mm. crucial. Well, it is. Yes, I have. Whether this document is a fake or not, and when it was written, we, still, we started that two and a half years ago asking three questions. Who composed this document? When and why? Those three questions are still being asked. Nobody has at this stage established when that ink was put on the paper. We've heard a lot of criticism. We've heard a lot of people say that this is a fake. Nobody's actually come out yet and called Anne a liar. She said the document was there in 1950, to her knowledge. Now, that raises a lot of questions. Did you, did you know a rummage? Did you have a look in the cupboard? Not in that cupboard. I was terrified of that cupboard. <coughs> Don't ask me why. I must have a different. Yeah. That particular cupboard had a little table in front of it. My old dad set record player at the top. And on top of that, a huge statue of the Virgin Mary, which just about covered the handle. And I never entered that cupboard until that day I went into the uh, just give me the creeps. I was terrified of it. I know it sounds fanciful here tonight, but <laughs> can I just ask um, when Mike made this uh, micro made this claim in the Liverpool Post that he did forge it and he knew exactly where in Liverpool to get the ink that's now being in question, which is one of the only inks that does have kind of what Mike did was actually point out a shop um, where inks are sold. I asked him this question on the phone actually earlier. Let, let you finish. Let me finish. Well, yes. Take the first part of it. Well, I, uh, yes, I, I asked that question of Mike on the telephone. He said, quite, oh, quite. Honestly, I go there every Saturday. It's a little sort of um, arts complex with, with shops, and I go there and get, get, get some second-hand paper back books without a copy. And it just happened to be a shop that was there. That so, is more apparent. But Paul, hang on, hang on. Before you, Paul, 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 just just come back a little bit because I just want to answer this, this question, which I will answer if you go up there. He can't spell his own name. He cannot spell his own name. 
Well, I'll, I'll answer it so everyone can hear it. So Mike actually pointed out the shop where he got the ink. When questioned what sort of ink, there was a blank expression. Didn't know, couldn't answer that. So it was and left. He told me, oh, excuse me, I'm interrupting, but he told me he asked for a non-watermarked ink. Which is total rubbish. <laughs> so it was it was left to the owner of the art shop to say, well, it probably would have been diamining. Oh, Ever- you're begging the you, you're begging the question that he, he was asking. He was asking for a specific wine. They got the uh, wine. Run that again. Uh, you, you, sorry, you just I, quote me again. Yeah. What, I, what, what Mike did was to point out the shop yeah. where he, he got the. He asked for a specific no, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. It was the owner of the shop that suggested the ink. It wasn't Mike Barrett. Yes, it was the, the owner. Paul McEwen. Somebody who went in. They suggested, he suggested the ink. And asked what the ink was. Andy, let's take the realistic point. Does the man in the shop remember selling ink to my father? No, he doesn't. Dr. Eastow done ink on ink test on this, and he said, conclusion, there is nothing in this ink that suggests it was anything other than the Victorian date. It then was, they got the top man in America, um, Stuart, what was his name? no, no, no. He's Correct. 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 They got Dr. Stephen Correct. Now, even though Rendell... Bob Correct. Bob that's right. Bob Correct. Bob Stephen Correct. that there was nothing <laughs> in the diary that would have any modern preservatives uh, in it whatsoever, and that was indeed confirmed by Rendell. Rendell said that this was a forgery written circa 1921, plus or minus 12 years. Martin Biden correctly came out and said, the scientists have given us an historically impossible date. Because it is. Because no one can work out, no historian can work out, how this could have been forged between 1909 and 1931. No one could have had the information to be able to put in it. So, is there the possibility that a very artistic policeman with access to the written record could have been forged? Well, you're then looking, yes. Do you mean with Anne as well? I mean, are we writing yeah, now? To, now what, what, you say, what you're saying is you're prepared to accept now it may not be a modern forgery, but you're now saying could it be a contemporary forgery, which I think is a reasonable question, Boss. And I think that, that is a, a, a totally reasonable question. It is one that I know that two people in this room have moved away from, neither Paul nor Keith. And we know them as responsible people that have written responsible books. Have, do not accept that this is a modern fortune. Keith interviewed Billy Gray after I did. Keith went up there himself and did a tape recording interviewed Billy Gray, which we have been published, but Keith did it. Neither of them believe it's a modern fortune. Therefore, that never happened. Yeah, we should also add the rider that I also don't believe that James Maverick wrote it. No, at the moment Keith is prepared to believe this could have been a contemporary forgery. 
Oh, as do I as well. Yes, yes. Right? That's the tool. Okay, fine. Now explain it. I want someone to explain how it could be. Now, here's an option that's been put forward to us. We've had uh, someone saying, okay, there's a man got access to police files. And he's there, and he's got the police files, and he's got these documents. Fine. What about the knowledge from within the household? Nicknames for people. What about Sir Jim? Knowing that you like to call himself Sir Jim. Again, you come up with the same question. Why the ramblings of poetry? Yes, he may have known about the empty tin box. He may have even known about the FM on the wall. He may have even known about the JM on the envelope of Chapman. That. And the mark on Edo's face, two inverted V's, or what was thought to be two inverted V's. He may have known about all those things, I accept that. There was also the too very much personal knowledge. The lab is being ill. The knowledge that Maybrick worked for Gustav Wick in London. All these, knowing that he liked to call himself Sir Jim, I'm quite happy. I work with Keith, I work with Paul. I'm quite happy for them to sit where they are because I know what it means ultimately. (laughs) They've got to explain to me how this could have been written in 1889. I want someone to tell me if it was written then at the time of the crimes, more or less, why they didn't include them as a The onus is on you to prove beyond reasonable doubt that it wasn't. Um, yes, I do. But at the same degree, these historians, bless their sweeping hearts, were telling me a year or two years ago that it had to have been written after 1988. I now they said it didn't. I think it's a reasonable, reasonable state to say it on a, in, in terms of the current state of knowledge. That there are those two particular details uh, about the Maybrick. I think the one is the Sajun, the other one is that um, the daughter, whose name I can't remember, Gladys. Gladys, uh, has been ill again. Now, these are two tiny, almost minuscule details in, in the journal, which cannot be traced to any known published source at the, pro- at the present time. Keith has found them, one in a set of documents in Wyoming. So in order to get that particular piece of information, you've got to have gone all the way to Wyoming. And then made totally inadequate use of this massive amount of information you've got, just pluck out this one pointless detail that nobody's liable to find out about unless you go to Wyoming. How did that piece of information get to Wyoming? Uh, because a man... Uh, no, that wasn't a man. Let me explain that. A, woman, a girl called Thomas Hornsprout, who was eight years old, in 1888, she was eight years old in 1888. She, her father was a business associate with Maybrick. And he came to Europe to do business. And he left his daughter with the Maybrick's battle crease in the summer of 1888. So in the summer prior to the autumn, she was living in Bobo and Gladys. And she then was tracked down by an man called Trevor Christie. How he found out she was there, I don't know. But Trevor Christie, who was an American author and who wrote Hedged in Arsenic, which was about the Maybrick trial, I think he worked on it for about 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. He worked on it for about 30 years. 
And he tracked her down, or she tracked him down, maybe she, he placed an advert like many authors have. But she remembered minute detail. And we know it was accurate because I've been in the house, I've been in Battlefield's house. And the way she describes that the house is spot on. And she said she remembered that he liked to call himself Sir Jim. And that there was actually, there were, um, uh, the household staff was called Sir Jim. And yet we got back and died now. There is no published reference of that. You have to go to Wyoming University, and I will make a point, but I do not believe the police in 1889 knew that. That is one of the parts of detail that I find it hard to accept. And I, and I also want a motive phrase. But your motive, motive it could come from this business of Florence Mabry versus deceased husband in the trial. It was a bit of a diplomatic incident between America and Britain. I agree with um, you, but we do you have the entire time. trial transcript, Nick. No, I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here. I'm not saying I believe that, but, but I mean, there, there's, um, I mean, you know. <laughs> there is no the, motive. There is a clear motive for a, a sort of forger who is anti the deceased husband of the woman on trial. So, so you're arguing, or I mean, so yeah, but, but, but you're arguing for a contemporary forgery. So we're still aware. It's wonderful you entertain the possibility because it means that you you aren't going along the line that this is just a modern forgery and can no, be dismissed I don't. like that I don't. because it's that Not, easy to do. I haven't do. gone into it as much detail as all of you have, but nevertheless, I don't I don't believe it is really. By the way, I'd like to say something just in brackets on. Bob Curance. I, I did a story on the Mussolini Diaries in my paper earlier this year. Bob Curance was a man who did an ink test on these documents, and I proved that his analysis was flawed. So I'm, I know that you're using him to support you. In no, I'm not. Bob Curance uh, actually supported Rendell, who said the diary was a fake. Yes, but he didn't find a problem with the date of the ink. Right, but nobody has. Apart from some in Essex. Some in Essex. No, they haven't. One contemporary uh, person that links both the Jack the Ripper murders and the Florence Maverick story, who was known at the time, it's quoted in print, being given details that even journalists weren't given, would have the medical knowledge and legal knowledge is full to who is also in print as having actually forged stuff at the time. He would have known about St. Jim, he would have known the family connections because he spent a lot okay, of time. That's good, Andy. That's fine, Andy. For it's for still a talking about an history. historic document. Well, a contemporary now. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what you're talking about. Well, Andy, can I ask you, do you believe this is a modern... I don't know if that's... Do you believe that this is... It doesn't matter. Do you believe that this is a forgery after 1989? What we're trying to say... I still say it's a forgery. I don't think it's Maverick. I'm just saying that... Was it written recently by, say, Anne no. for the purpose of making money? Or are we looking at a document that was, as Anne says, written by somebody sometime prior to 1950? 
The envelopes have a horse in. If you read the police, well, you will, the papers will be published. When you read that large report, you will see it's the letter J. You will also find in the contemporary newspapers it said that Annie Chapman had three weeks. The diary says, We have discovered for the first time, thanks to Stephen Knight's papers, some of the reports that he's got no longer existed in the RA. But Stephen Knight's papers show that Avalon Report says there were two things. And he even tells you what they are. One was a wedding ring, and one was a keeper's ring. I don't know what keeper's ring is. But that the is keeper's, the keeper's ring for the old chips to use the word. Right. To make sure the other ring didn't fit off. Right. Well, I guess it's much, but I wasn't going to say so. But again, why do you think on the diary that conflicts with all the known published records, yet it found it to be it's turning into modern culture, isn't it? The forgery could be taken from something else in the book. No, you're saying if you're looking at the forgery right now. No. For it to be, it has to be. It wasn't in Steve Knight. It has to be. It was paper. We have no. access to his papers that were left with his literary executive. No, no, but in his book. After that, you mentioned the two, two things in the book. I'm afraid we have to close it now. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. at the Cloak and Dagger Club on the 7th of January 1995. For further reading on the Maybrick Diary, we recommend The Diary of Jack the Ripper, The Discovery, The Investigation, The Debate by Shirley Harrison. Ripper Diary, The Inside Story by Seth Linder, Caroline Morris and Keith Skinner. Jack the Ripper, The Final Chapter by Paul Feldman. The Last Victim, The Extraordinary Life of Florence Maybrick, The Wife of Jack the Ripper, and 25 Years of the Diary of Jack the Ripper, The True Facts by Robert Smith, soon to be released in a revised edition entitled The True History of the Diary of Jack the Ripper in July 2019 from Mango Books. a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you'll be able to find over 160 round table discussions, author interviews, conference presentations, Whitechapel Society meetings and archive tapes all about Jack the Ripper, East End history and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast.